Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. How are you doing today? Do I sound happy? Well, I am. I am working on the Crypt Book One Shakedown. Right now, the work is focused on the outline and the background info. We are fleshing out the world building, all of the stuff that will be the bedrock or foundation for the entire five book series. My military consultants are a big help. We've got a submariner. We've got an Air Force colonel. We've got a special forces operator. We have all kinds of people with actual experience bringing that experience to bear in creating the Planetary Union fleet which will be a huge part of what's going on in the crypt. Now, this version of the crypt is going to be very different from what you may have heard in the past. It's a much more structured story. I'm hoping you guys are going to dig it. This week, we're working on that plot structure, getting it ready to roll, because come April 1st, Sigler Ascension Day, we will start the actual writing. Let me get you caught up on the story so far, and then we're going to go snorkeling with my pet Spinosaurus. Previously on The Stone Wolves, Killian has spent a lifetime keeping the monster at bay, but that time has run out. Aya is about to be baptized in blood. Thorn is almost finished with his cruncher project, and he will not let anyone get in his way. Chapter 23 Born again. In life, timing was everything. And Killian's timing sucked. He stood motionless, peeking around the jagged edge of a granite outcropping that had been pushed up by geologic forces who knew how long ago. No wind and no water meant no erosion. What he saw with his own eyes was the same thing he'd seen in his HUD via Peach's cameras. Only now there was an unwelcome addition. Two of them, in fact. And that was only if he counted the ships. He was looking south. There, the Vermada Research Facility. Two stories. Most of its north wall was made of big, clear crystal panes. At the western edge of that wall, an industrial airlock the kind big enough to allow an 18-wheeled truck and its cargo. Between Killian and that clear wall sat a pair of long, thin, expeditionary fast transport ships. One was of hurrah design, evident by the flight bubble on the prow. The other ship he recognized, because he's ridden in one in his null knife days. A purist nation Ezekiel-class combat transport. The purist design had actually been copied by the hurrah and the two ships had served similar roles, mainly that of quietly deploying a platoon and supporting equipment behind enemy lines. Both ships were made to carry three standard cargo containers laid end-to-end. The ship's thin design made them effective as submarines. Killian had done a half-dozen missions, where the ships would descend through the atmosphere, then plunge into an ocean, then continue on to the target zone. 
the Vermada EFTs had brought troops in the form of 16 well-armed mercenaries. And to make matters worse, up above, he saw three Isaacs slowly circling the area. Cargo ships, mercs, fighter craft, the pocket carrier had brought all of it. Shucking hell, Killian said. The supposed five guards, who had been cooped up in the facility for years, would have posed little problem. The mercs, on the other hand, looked like a different story. Three key, one heavy key, four Sklorno, two Quith warriors, six humans, all wearing exosuit armor, all carrying assault rifles. The key and the heavy key also carried twins, two-shot portable rocket launchers. Even though the Merc's deployment was lazy, Killian could see by the way they moved that they were experienced. Maybe the Oleron could take out one Isaac, but three? And with only Zan at the helm? No chance. Killian couldn't call in air support. That option was off the table, unless he wanted to kiss his ride out of here goodbye. The game had changed. Changed in a very, very bad way. Atop the airlock, red lights flashed, casting rotating beams on the stone landscape. The big door slid open, revealing an 18-wheeler with a blue cargo container strapped to its flatbed. The truck had a high clearance, perhaps a full meter, and big knobby tires to allow for the planet's broken ground. How many is that? he asked, already knowing it was the third. The third, Aya said. Killian and his squad had just arrived. Peaches had seen the EFT's land, had seen the same flatbed truck twice drive up the ramp of the Hurrah EFT and into its cargo bay. Once inside, the EFT's loading system lifted the container off the flatbed and the truck backed out, down the ramp, and returned to the facility for another load. The loading process was efficient and fast. Disturbingly fast. Beans, Redwire said. Are you picking up any of that weird energy from those containers? The Sklorna was quiet for a moment. None, 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 he said. But my detection system is untested. I can't be sure it works. Beans often said he wasn't sure if the things he was creating would work, yet they usually did. Maybe Thorne pulled the plug on the operation, Killian said. Maybe the containers are full of gear and personal effects of the staff. It was a stupid thing to say. He knew it. The cruncher could be in any one of those containers, or still inside the facility. We have to strike, Vidan said. Now, the Hurrah EFT has two containers loaded. We have no idea what's in them. When the third container goes in, it will return to the carrier. Killian again looked at the array of mercs. They'd spread out more while he dawdled. If we attack them directly, they'll use rockets on Beans, Killian said. Beans, can your Ursa suit handle a hit from one of those? Unlikely, Beans said. And I would prefer to not find out. If Killian and the others targeted the key, maybe they could take them out before they could fire. If not, if the key took cover, they'd target Beans first thing. If we lose Beans... It'll be three against however many mercs remain, Killian said. Viden can't help, not out here. Aya isn't a trained combatant. We don't have the numbers. We have to wait. He felt a hand on his shoulder. 
Killing in turn, found himself looking into the eyes of Redwire. The man stared out from behind his darkened visor. The man I used to know didn't worry about numbers, he said. On a rocky area like this, with plenty of cover, he didn't need to. Killian felt the push-pull of pride and shame, of the desperate need to not give in while knowing there was little choice. I'm not that man anymore, he said, his voice small and brittle. That man is, that man is lost. Redwire leaned in closer. Then find him. Now. Killian closed his eyes. There was no way around it. The beast had slipped out on its own, only for a moment, but that moment had kept his crew alive. The same crew that stood here with him, now waiting for his orders. He and his friends were outnumbered and outgunned. There was too much at stake. Too damn much. Killian knew there was only one real choice. After almost 40 years, he had to let the beast out of its cage. All right, he said. All right. He reached a hand into his cloak, found the Umaphine injector, pulled it out, offered it to Goldman. Will you do the honors? Goldman looked at the injector. What is it? It's me, Killian said. It's the real me. It's the killer. Goldman nodded, slung his rifle, took the injector. Killian offered his arm, the inside of his elbow facing up. There, as with all exosuits, was a thick patch of self-seal, so that medics could inject various stimulants or medication without removing part of or slicing into the suit. Goldman gripped Killian's elbow, pressed the injector to the spot. Wait, Killian said. He looked at Beans and Aya. What you're about to see is... It's not going to be pretty, Killian said. But also, it's real. I have fought for so long against this, but it's who I really am, deep in my core. I'm sorry. I looked from Killian to Goldman to Beans and back again. What are you talking about? She asked. Beans, what's he talking about? What's in the injector? Beans, in his Ursa Major suit, Hidden by the outcropping shadow, raised a schmeck fist to his schmeck chest. I understand, Skipper, the Sklorno said. There's no other way. Killian fought back tears, the tears of failure, the tears of so many wrong choices over so many years. Zan wasn't there, but he heard her in his combat, the same way he heard the others on this airless rock. I am sorry, my friend, she said. I am sorry it has come to this. You did your best. But, as Bean said, there is no other way. You know this. Now the tears came. Killian couldn't wipe them away. Buddha and Haiwan on an apex pogo stick, Aya said. Will someone tell me what the shuck is going on? Killian nodded at Redwire, who pressed the injector tip against the patch of self-seal, then pressed the tiny trigger. The cold rush of fluid spreading through his veins. With it came pain. Pain, 
and the crowning, triumphant, internal roar of a long, slumbering demon rising once again. You said you'd heard of the Stone Wolves, he said to Aya. You said you'd heard of the killer. Aya nodded, her eyes wide with lack of understanding. Yeah, Skipper, and you said that was you. He shook his head, feeling the antidote spread through his body, feeling the Umafine counteract the Nazdor. That wasn't me, he said. At least, not then. What you've seen before is a withered shell, a cheap mask. The mask is coming off, Aya. You're about to see the real thing. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Aya watched as Skipper touched his arm, lightly, where the injector had done its work. The silence of the airless expanse hit home. I could hear only her own breathing echoed inside her helmet. He bent at the waist, his hands on his stomach, the face behind his clear visor scrunched in sudden agony, making his old man wrinkles look deeper, more pronounced than they'd ever been before. 
He ducked his head, fell to his knees. He was all cloak, almost another lump of shadowy granite in a vast ocean of the stuff. Goldman took a step back, unslung his assault rifle. He wasn't aiming at Skipper, but he had his hands on the weapon as if he might have to use it. Use it on Skipper. She tightened her grip on her own weapon, fear building within her. What did you do to him? she asked. Did you drug him? Goldman slowly shook his head. I took away the drugs. He'll be clean and sober, probably for the first time in a long time. This was clean and sober? Skipper rocked once, then he fell still for a moment. I wondered if Goldman would shoot him after all. None of this made sense. Skipper slowly stood, rising up, and up, and up. Was he bigger? Was he taller? He was like a different sentient altogether. He'd always been big and frightening, bigger and more frightening than anyone she'd ever met, but she'd never realized how hunched he'd always been, how he'd always looked shrunken. Not anymore. He stood at his full height. Even beneath the cloak, his shoulders seemed wider. His head was level instead of the perpetual half-hang she hadn't realized had been part of his normal posture. Before Goldman injected Skipper with that drug, Aya would have sworn on a stack of radcasts that Goldman was the bigger of the two men. Now, Yitzhak Goldman could be Skipper's little brother. The cloak hood hid Skipper's face in deep shadow. As Aya watched, glowing lines spread across that face, filling the hood with red light. The man looked like a demon. Red, take everyone through the front as we planned, he said. I'll neutralize the mercenaries. He looked different, and he sounded different. A new edge to his words, as if his voice could cut steel. Skipper flipped the left side of his cloak back. He drew his orphaner. It was, technically, a pistol, yet it was bigger than Aya's Y-57, almost as big as her tough luck gun. The skipper held it in one hand, as easily she might hold a fork or a spoon. And neither the Y-57 nor the tough luck gun ended in a shucking hatchet blade. I will go with Skipper, Bean said. We will kick anuses and register the names of those we kick. Bean sounded different, too. It was hard to place the emotions of some non-humans, Sklornos in particular, but in the past few months, she'd come to know Beans and was sure she knew how the little guy felt. Beans was worried and afraid. Worried and afraid for the hulking demon with the red, glowing face. I think not, Vidan said. It's better if the killer works alone. Better for everyone. Free of the restrictions of going cold, she could use her translator box and talk over the comms connection. As crazy as she was, Aya wasn't entirely sure if having Viden here was a good thing or a bad thing. The skipper reached his free hand into his cloak. He pressed something inside. The strange coils on his right shoulder flickered once, like a holotank on the fritz, and then he was gone, as if his body had vanished. Only his red-lined face remained. I'll see you inside, he said. The red lines blinked out, 
Aya had a sense of movement, and then nothing. The demon ghost was gone. We circle east, Goldman said. We'll go in the front airlock. Move fast, stay sharp, stay silent. Aya, it's on you to keep us hidden until we get inside. She found herself nodding, then jogging, staying close to the quarterback-turned-terrorist-turned-hero. As Aya moved, she checked the tiny readout secured atop the armor of her right forearm. But she couldn't get the vision of that face, glowing red, glowing with evil, out of her mind. Druge Thorne stood on his factory floor, his face awash in pale blue light, as his engineers finished a few final tweaks, preparing for delivery. The first EFT was loaded, prepping for dust-off. The second EFT already had one container loaded, with the truck coming back for another. After that, the third container, and then his long mission, would finally be complete. Perfect scheduling. Perfect. He felt the power emanating from the thing, even though he wasn't entirely sure what that power was. Some of his scientists might understand the full picture. If so, they were keeping that knowledge to themselves. After five years cooped up in this plascrete excuse for a proper facility, they were ready to leave. The last thing they wanted to do was suddenly make themselves indispensable to Lord Druge Thorne. Perhaps they feared that they would be kept in their roles, and the next frozen, bloody handprints on the window might be theirs. We've done it, Drew said. Twenty years, and we've done it. The forty-odd scientists, engineers, and other workers on the factory floor said nothing. They held glasses of champagne. He noticed none of them were actually drinking it. Maybe they suspected he was going to kill them, thought there was poison in the bubbly. As if Druge would ever sully champagne with such a thing. There were better ways to be rid of this lot. If they didn't want to drink, so be it. With a mechanical hand, Druge raised his own glass to his lips, seeing how the blue-white light played off the bubbles rising up in the yellow-orange liquid. He took a sip. Delicious. Everything was about to change. Everything. And it would change because of him. If only his family were alive to see this moment, to share in the grand accomplishment of it all. His daughter. Zivimli. If she'd lived, she would now have been 47 years old. Perhaps she would have found love, a partner in life, as Yazada had been a partner for Druge. Perhaps she would have had children. Perhaps Druge and Yazada would have been granddads. The killer had taken that away. Killian Carbonaro, who was finally dead. If only there had been another way, a way to capture him so that Druge could have watched the man die, could have taken his time slicing the murderer into tiny bits. Maybe then the hollow feeling would be gone. Maybe the endless well of hate would be gone. Instead, Druge knew he would live with those feelings for the rest of his days. If only. Druge stared at the alien device. He blinked, no longer seeing what was in front of him. 
he'd sent the Ponsky sisters to Ruhrgurk. The sisters were dangerous sentients, quite ruthless, but they weren't professional assassins. Once Druge had learned Carbonaro was alive and learned where the murderer was going, Druge could have sent professional assassins. The Vermada didn't have many dedicated assets of that kind, but they did have money and contacts. Druge could have had the broker put out a high-priced contract on Carbonaro. Assassins would have flocked to Rurgurk. But Druge had not done that. Why? Why had he not brought everything he had to bear against that big bastard? A chill blossomed in Druge's stomach. He hadn't brought everything to bear, because a part of him, a part of him that had festered and grown and creeped through his subconscious for 37 years, didn't want Carbonaro to die in some distant part of the galaxy. Druge wanted to see Carbonaro die. A hidden part of Druge had wanted Carbonaro to come here. Druge lifted his hand, activated his palm up. Operations, he said. A man's face, a nervous face, appeared in the palm up. Yes, Lord Thorne? What is the status of the wreckage recovered from the Oleron? Has the emissary's people analyzed it? Uh, they're in the process, Lord Thorne. They collected three small pieces of wreckage and are focusing on one in particular, a brass fixture, very decorative. The serial number is apparently partially visible. They are seeing if they can identify the manufacturer, possibly even the ship it was on. Decorative? The Oleron was a cargo ship. Donkey class. Those were usually very utilitarian. That didn't mean Carbonaro couldn't have modified the ship, but still... Drew shook his head. He was chasing mental shadows. In 31 minutes, if everything went exactly to schedule, he would be finished with this place. It was over. A done deal. So why did his nagging intuition tell him otherwise? I'm coming to join you in operations, he said. Contact the crews of Barge 1 and Barge 2. Make certain they understand the importance of following the timeline. Tell the mercenary commander to come see me immediately. I won't keep him long. And remind the pilot of Barge 2 I need to be aboard before it leaves. Yes, Lord Thorne. Druge closed his hand, shutting off the worried face, then gave one last look at the amazing, strange device he'd spent twenty years working to create. Seal it up, he said to the quivering scientists around him. Get the rest of the shipping containers loaded. And please, drink your celebratory drinks. You have all done well and deserve to celebrate. Druge wheeled, walking through the factory's narrow subfloor section, heading for the door. He looked around as he did, knowing this would be the last time he saw the factory equipment, painted mostly blue, in the ground floor and second deck catwalks, painted mostly yellow. All of this machinery, all the robots, both fixed in place and mobile, would stay here. Them and the corpses of the sentients who had used them. In the shiny bits of machinery, the parts made of polished metal that weren't painted over, Druge could see the reflections of the cruncher's pale blue-white light. Those reflections grew narrower 
as the crunchers' doors moved closer to each other, then blinked out completely when they slid shut. Inside her ill-fitting tower marine armor, Aya Omiata shivered. Not from the cold of this barren world, because her temperature inside the suit was perfectly managed, but from fear. She hadn't been this scared going into the borehole. She didn't know why. The last time she'd been this terrified? When the Natvig had closed in on her, when she'd been trapped in that mall, with no hope and no chance of escape. But was she scared of the combat she was about to experience, or of what she'd seen the skipper just become? Aya, snap out of it! She blinked, looked around, found Yutsak Goldman looking at her from behind the dark visor of his flat black combat helmet. Sorry, she said. I'm ready. Which she was not, but it was far too late for anything else. She stood to the right of the facility's front airlock, the looming presence of Ursa Major Beans behind her. Goldman was on the other side of the airlock, assault rifle in his hands, his back pressed to the facility's plexcreed walls. Aya checked the small display mounted on her forearm armor. Airlock remote code accessed, she said. Ready to go in on your order. They were going in through the facility's front door. There were only three entrances. The main airlock facing the small landing pad, a rear airlock for safety, so that there were two ways out of the building, and the big industrial sliding airlock on the facility's west-facing loading dock, which was where Skipper was going. The front airlock, oddly, offered the best chance of entering without being seen. This facility wasn't the kind of place that had a lot of foot traffic. There would be no receptionist at the front door to greet visitors that never came. The rear airlock appeared to be near the facility's living quarters. No way of knowing who was walking around that area, either on the clock or off it. And as for the loading dock door, it opened directly onto the factory floor. Even if there was no one inside the front airlock, it would be only a matter of minutes or seconds before Aya and the others were seen. She had cut off the airlock signals from the rest of the facility's grid. She could put all internal cameras on a visual loop, so they constantly showed the same empty space, but she could do nothing about the eyes and ears of the sentients walking around inside. Lulz, Goldman said. As soon as the outer door closes behind us, you're up. The hurrah didn't answer. She'd been useless so far, but once inside the facility, with atmosphere to support her flight, it would be a different story. I had tapped at the small control she'd mounted on her right forearm. She didn't trust HUD iTrack interface. She wanted things she could actually press, buttons and dials in a small keypad, as archaic as those things could be. When she'd organized ops for the Fafner Project strike teams, she'd always insisted they carry actual hardware instead of relying on holo interfaces. No matter how dialed down the output, a holo interface or HUD screen emitted light, and that was one more way for a strike team to be spotted. Hands-on, work by touch, that was the best way. As far as she knew, this was her big moment in the op just open the front airlock without triggering any internal notice. From here on out, the big boys, and the little boy in a big boy schmeck, would take the lead.
Opening in three, she said. Two. One. She pressed the keypad she'd programmed for the opening sequence. She assumed the airlock's internal mechanisms were working, but with no air on the surface of MT-734, she couldn't hear the gears whirring or the air being sucked out. The airlock doors slid open. Red stepped inside, his rifle raised. Not even a second passed before his hand reached back out and he waved Aya in. The fear was really taking hold now. This seemed too easy. The airlock chamber was big enough for everyone, although Beans had to squat his schmeck down so low he was waddling more than walking. Aya tapped the next control. The outer airlock door slid shut. Four sentients crammed into the small, white space. Were all airlocks white? Seemed that way, although this one was marred by scrapes and scratches, dark marks left on the walls, by years' worth of gear being carried in and out. Air hissed into the lock, quiet at first, then louder, then silent as pressure equalized. Viden fluttered up from the back of the Ursa Major suit, her long blade spear held in her mouth flaps. Aya looked at Goldman, who adjusted his grip on his assault rifle. He pointed it at the inner airlock, then nodded. Aya pressed the next button. The internal airlock slid open. She had a moment, only a moment, to see a red-headed human woman look up from a data pad she held in one arm. The woman didn't even have time to register surprise before the blur that was Viden whizzed out of the airlock and whipped her long blade in a tight line. The woman's severed head tumbled away from a neck that spurted a jet of blood into the air, so forceful that bits of red splashed against the ceiling. The woman's body crumpled. Her severed head hit the gray plastic floor with a small thud, bounced only once, came to rest on its cheek. The woman's eyes stared out, seemingly at Aya, and Aya stared back. A slight push from behind moved Aya out of the airlock, and she stumbled a little. The headless woman held a data pad. She hadn't dropped it. Not a gun, not a knife. A data pad. Had she been a scientist? Had she been a threat of any kind at all? Aya! She came back to the moment again, realized Goldman had called her name twice. Yeah, I know, she said, even though he hadn't asked her a question. Stay behind beans, Goldman said. Your job is to keep us hidden as long as you can and shut down all signals leaving this place. All of them. Aya nodded, an exaggerated nod, just to make sure Goldman saw that she was listening, that she understood that she would follow orders. Goldman had said her name. He'd said Beans' name. She realized Goldman hadn't bothered assigning everyone a call sign. That, more than the decapitated woman, more than anything else, made the picture crystal clear. Skipper, Goldman, and Viden were going to kill everyone in this place, so it didn't really matter if real names were used. The time to debate morals was over. They were here. They had to finish the mission. And the Stone Wolves had arrived. Guilty or innocent, the headless woman, her blood spreading in a puddle around her, would not be the last to die. Aya, Goldman said, you're our nav. Call out directions. She checked the map in her tiny forearm screen, 
even though she didn't need to. She'd memorized the sketched layout. If those drawings were accurate, Aya knew where to go. She pointed down the corridor, with its curved sides and flat floor, so typical of a hub and tube construction. The factory floor is in the center of the facility, she said, straight down this corridor. When we hit the first hub, we go right. Viren fluttered down the corridor, her crystal spear blade leaving a thin trail of blood droplets in her wake. Goldman moved silently along behind her. Beans followed, big suit surprisingly quiet, its mismatched metal mass almost filling the corridor. Aya did as she was told. She stayed close to the Schmeck's wide back and went to work. Peaches was still outside. With Aya inside, the watchbot could have a bigger impact up on the roof where the facility's main sensors, detectors, and transmitters were located. He was reborn. The killer read the data fed to him by the void cloak. It was so much more than camouflage fabric and armor. Environmental sensors streamed information into a small hollow HUD projected in front of his left eye. How much oxygen remained in the cloak's bladders, internal and external temperatures, surface temp of the two EFTs, and so much more. He felt strong. He felt normal. Gone was the weakling who drowned in drugs and alcohol. Why had he done that to himself? It made no sense now. His heart rate and breathing slowed to preserve his oxygen. The killer took a moment to study the battlefield. Sixteen armed and presumably trained enemy combatants. Lazy, undisciplined, yet even in their laziness, they had spread out to a wide perimeter, each of them drifting toward a granite boulder or outcropping that could provide cover. Once the shooting started, those combatants would be ready to fight. Two EFT haulers. The hurrah-built one had closed its loading ramp and was clearly prepping to leave. The killer watched the now-unladen truck back out of the second EFT. It had delivered a mustard-colored cargo container. Was that the last part of the delivery, or were one or two more containers still to be loaded? The killer had to strike, and quickly. If he attacked the loaded, hurrah-built EFT first, he might kill the crew and disable the ship, but at the same time, the 16 mercs would know exactly where he was. That would put him on the defensive. He preferred to be on the offensive. He thought about calling Zan, having her come in, guns a-blazing, and take out both haulers. He glanced up, saw the lights of the three fighter craft circling the facility. Thorne didn't give a damn about tourists seeing unusual things anymore, a sure sign he was done here. He was leaving. No, all Zan could do right now was fly the Ulrin to its destruction. The cargo ship was no match for three real Isaacs, especially if they had hurrah pilots. Without the Oleron, the killer might not be able to get his team away from the battlefield. The same team that was about to breach the facility's front airlock. The killer needed to make a decision. Time was running out. Sixteen armed combatants. Too many guns to leave active. Every enemy soldier he eliminated was one less gun in the fight. He had to start there.
The killer mentally willed himself to breathe slightly faster for his heart rate to rise. He moved toward the first gunman. Druge felt his heart hammering. He knew he was being ridiculous. In 20 minutes, he'd be gone, his mission accomplished, his financial future set forever. Pain in his spine, in his neck, his skin tingled. Have they found that serial number yet? No, Lord Thorne, the controller said. The controller's office was small, with enough room for two people to work. Various paper notes with various scribblings stuck to the grimy walls. The place smelled of reheated food and the body odor caused by those meals. Drew stood behind the controller, who was seated in an office chair, three holotanks before him, showing information and various scenes of the loading process. The Hurrah EFT raising its ramp, sealing up for the flight to the carrier. The 18-wheeler returning to the facility for another load, airlock opening wide like a metal mouth to swallow it up. The staff on the factory floor, finishing the loadout prep, an area map that showed three icons representing Hurrah-made fighters patrolling the area, a larger area map that showed various tourist ships. Two of the tourist ships seemed to have detected the fighters or the EFTs and were coming in for a closer look. Sometimes, nosy kids get punched in said nose. Have those two civilian ships seen what we are doing? I don't think so, Lord Thorne, the controller said. But they detected all the activity. They'll have visual in maybe ten minutes? Druge would have to decide if those ships needed to be shot down. It was a toss-up, really. Soon, this place would be a crater, so it didn't matter what those ships saw, who they reported that information to. If they saw the EFTs or fighters, though, that might be a bit of data that let someone, somewhere, start connecting the dots. The skinless was a very significant Vermada asset. If word got out, the broker would not be happy. And an unhappy broker was an unhealthy thing. Get the emissary on the line, Drew said. The emissary's nasty image appeared only moments later. The first EFT reports a full load, the leaky said. I want the second one here right away. Drew shook his head, which hurt his neck, which was annoying as hell. It isn't loaded yet, he said. And we have curiosity seekers coming this way. Send your remaining welcome wagoner to take them out. The leaky's fish mouth opened, closed. You want to cause casualties? Now? It's for the best, Drew said. Get them before they get close enough to see the EFT. The leaky waggled its head side to side. For that species, the gesture meant it understood and agreed. I will pull one from your local patrol, the emissary said. I always prefer small ships to work in pairs. That means... The leaky glanced off, as if listening to someone the camera could not hear. Druja's scalp started to tingle. Something was wrong. We have possible information on that serial number, the emissary said. That fixture was likely original equipment on a pleasure craft manufactured at Pristine Yacht Company, located on Gritchlick in the Quith Concordia. A surge of panic. A surge of excitement. 
Take out those visitors, Drew said. Now! He reached over the controller's shoulder, wiped the emissary's image from the holotank. Show me the locations of the mercenary squads, Drew said. The controller had the information up in seconds. A map of the area around the facility, 16 blue dots indicating the soldiers' locations. As Druge watched, one light blinked out. We've lost vital signs on one of the mercenaries, the controller said. No, not again. Get me a visual of that area immediately. Maybe the controller wasn't the world's smartest sentient, but he knew his job. In the center holotank, Drew saw the rocky plains northwest of the facility. And, in that spot, a single prone form. A mercenary. It can't be happening again. A flicker of light. There, standing over the prone mercenary, was a figure in a hooded cloak. The shadows inside that hood flared with red light. Light that came from lines on a man's face. The man stared straight into the camera, and he smiled. The man winked out, leaving only the dead Merc to show he'd ever been there at all. Druge knew he should have felt surprise and horror at the sight, yet he did not. He felt one thing and one thing only. A cold joy. It is happening again, but this time, you evil murderer, it will end in a very different way. Sound the alert. Get all hands to the loading area. Patch me in directly to the mercenaries. Then get the emissary back, Drew said. And prepare the floodlights. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram where he is at Scott Sigler and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler. Engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing 
to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.